um, look to God as we sing to him and as we even hear his word. Um, I'm particularly joyful today when I see new faces and faces that we haven't seen in a long time. <laughs> um, and uh, I pray that today will be a blessing as we hear God's word, as we hear God speaking to us today. You might have seen on the bulletin things that were new and, and different. Um, and, and let me encourage you to, um, to, to, to be committed uh, and, 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 and just think about your schedule for the next coming, for this coming year. Think about how you uh, will run around your schedule, especially as we will be looking at um, new membership classes and uh, those people who, were, um, who applied for membership um, we're going to start with membership classes soon. Um, we're going to start with the with the men uh, men's fellowship. Please make sure that you 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 deal with your schedule to make sure that you are there uh, every month, just once a month. P please be there um, that we may grow together. Uh, attend the prayer services that we're going to have each and every Sunday. Uh, let us make sure that we are committed to the progress of the gospel, the progress and the growth of the church as we come together. Amen. Um, 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 we, we, we started last week by introducing uh, the, the Paul's letter to the Philippians as we are going through this series um, of, of, of uh, Paul's letter to the, to the Philippians as we call it life in Christ. Today, we're just going to look at chapter 1, verse 3 to 8. We're going to read from verse 3 to 8. And the title for today's sermon is Christ-Centered Fellowship. Christ-Centered Fellowship. Let me read uh, from verse 3 to verse 8, and then we'll pray and go into God's word together. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment in the and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this is the word of God. Amen. Let us pray. Indeed, Lord, you speak to us through your word and we pray for hearts that will be opened, that you open our spiritual ears to hear your voice as you speak to us. We pray, Father, for conviction. We pray for correction, for rebuke, for you to instruct us in, in, in doctrine, O oh Lord, and to train us in righteousness, that we may be those who are equipped, those who are thoroughly equipped and ready for every good work. We pray that your word will be planted deep in our hearts. Teach us, O oh God, today your word. Be with me as I even proclaim it. Give me clarity of speech and clarity of thought. For the sake of your name and your kingdom, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A casual reading of Paul's letter to, to the Philippians will lead you to, to an awareness 
of the special relationship that Paul enjoyed with these believers. Although they had not seen each other for, for over 10 years, there was still a strong bond between Paul and the believers in Philippi. When Paul was in need, after leaving uh, Macedonia, and, and no church could help him, no church came alongside him to, to help him when he was in need, this church, the, the church in Philippi, came alongside him with their resources for the progress of the gospel. And when they heard that Paul had been arrested in Rome, they sent one of their members, Paul talks about it here in, in Philippians, they sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to, to minister to Paul's need. There, there, there was a strong bond between Paul and, and these Christians. And no wonder Paul writes to this church with such tender and, and loving words. He, he calls them in, verse, in chapter 1, verse, verse 1, he calls them saints that are in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 1, verse 5, he, he calls them partners in the gospel. Again, in verse 7, he calls them fellow partakers of grace. He goes on to say in chapter 1 verse 8 that they are people that he yearns for with the affection of Christ. And, and you look at chapter 4 verse 1 where he says to them, he calls them brothers and he says, whom I love and, and long for. This relationship, this, this bond of love between Paul and the Philippians had its origins in their union with Christ. There were people who were united, who were united with Christ first. And it made this bond to be strong. It made this relationship to be a relationship that was uh, 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 fruitful and strong. And humanly speaking, these people had nothing in common. They had nothing that could bring them together. Uh, think about the very first converts in, 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 in Philippi. Remember that we looked at Acts chapter 16, right? When we looked at uh, uh, the, 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 the initial planting of the church in Philippi, and, and when you think about the very first converts, think first about Lydia. Lydia was a successful businesswoman. The Bible tells us she was a successful businesswoman. She was a seller of purple goods. Second, we see a slave girl with a spirit of divination. She, she was at the bottom of the social barrel. She, 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 she was owned by people. She was enslaved. She became Paul's second convert. And thirdly, there was a Philippian jailer. Think about these three people. They had nothing in common. There was a social and, and cultural wall that made it impossible for these people to have any sort of relationship before their conversion. Paul tells us again in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, I love this verse, verse 13 and 14, in, in, that in essence, Christ, that, 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 that Christ uh, uh, broke this cultural and social separation and he removed it by his blood. So this cultural and social separation, this wall that was uh, uh, in, in a way built against uh, 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 this uh, communion between these people outside of Christ, Christ removed it by his blood. He explains in 
Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, saying about Christ that for he himself is our peace. Listen to these words. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So what, what does Christ do? He breaks this dividing wall of hostility. These three people who normally cannot come together in fellowship are brought in fellowship in Christ. In other words, the only reason these three people can sit down and, and break bread together is only because of Christ. Because in Christ, there's no rich, there's no poor, there's no black, there's no white, there's no Jew, no Gentile, all are one in Christ. Christ breaks every, every wall of hostility. And we see this fellowship that they have. It's a Christ-centered fellowship. It is, it, is an, it is unfortunate that such a fellowship, as we see here, is hard to find in our individualistic culture. We, we live in, a, in, a, in an individualistic culture where everyone does their own thing, right? Where everyone uh, uh, does not want, no one wants to be bothered. Everyone wants to do their own thing. They want to be in their own corner. They want to be isolated. We live in this individualistic culture and it makes fellowship in Christ impossible and hard. And this is something you need to consider today. And examine yourself as, as to whether you are seeking Christ-centered fellowship or you are deliberately separating yourself from it. The truth is, growth in Christ is never in isolation. Right? It's never in isolation. We grow in a community. Paul Tripp calls this, this growth of, of Christians, he calls it a, 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 a community project. He says growth is a community project. It is here when we encourage one another, when we rebuke, correct, and train one another, right? It is in this community that we can grow, not in, not in isolation. Growth does not happen in an island. And as we consider this, I want us to see in this passage five elements of a Christ-centered fellowship. Five elements of a Christ-centered fellowship. And I'm going to go through them uh, one by one. First, the, the first element of a Christ-centered fellowship is praying for one another. We see that in verse 4, verse 3 and 4. Praying for one another. Paul, when, when, when you look at verse 3 and 4, this is what he says. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Think about those words. Paul begins his letter with thanksgiving. And this was a customary way that Paul began his letters with when he wrote to different churches. He would start by introducing himself and he would probably introduce the person that he was with as well as is the case in this letter. Then he would indicate who he was writing to followed by a greeting 
the greeting would go something like this grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ and after this he would burst out in thanksgiving concern uh, thanksgiving to god concerning the people that he would be writing to and what is peculiar what is unique about this thanksgiving is that paul is in prison let us think about it a bit paul is imprisoned in 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 Rome. and when we see the opening of the letter he is bursting out in joy and this is not the first thing you expect from someone who is imprisoned right not the first thing that you expect you expect them to be wallowing in self-pity you expect them to be crying to be begging to be bailed out to 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 appeal but here is a man who rides to this church and the first thing he says is to announce to them that the about the joy that he has he he announces to this church about the joy that he has and it is very important to think about this because he's writing to a church that was also facing persecution they were facing some kind of persecution. And they are expecting Paul to also complain about his persecution. But when they read the letter, they find a man who is filled with joy in his heart. Who's bubbling in joy. Note what he says here. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy in other words this is what he's saying he says every time i remember you every time i think about you i burst out in thanksgiving to god i joyfully pray for each and every one of you the, the thought of these believers was one that brought a smile to the apostle paul as he thought about their love for God, their commitment to the gospel, as he thought about how they were committed, whenever he thought about them, unlike the Galatians whom he called foolish Galatians, these ones, he says, when I think about you, when I remember you, I, I thank God. I, I thank my God. I burst out in thanksgiving for you. In a prison cell, that would have otherwise been a discouragement. A thought of these Christians was a refreshing encouragement. And what a joy it is when you are a Philippian, when you are in Philippi, a Christian in Philippi, to hear Paul telling you that you are on his mind. What a joy it is to hear that I am on Paul's mind because you would know, you would be sure that your name will be mentioned at the mercy seat. You would be confident that Paul would mention me at the, at the, at the mercy seat. Note his prayer here. It, it is a frequent, indiscriminate, and joyful prayer. A frequent, indiscriminate, and joyful prayer. Let us, let us break that apart. First of all, it is frequent. It is a frequent prayer. He says he prays for them always in every prayer of his. 
He, he never leaves them out. He, he, he commits them to the Lord every day. It is a frequent prayer. Secondly, it is an indiscriminate prayer. It is indiscriminate. He says, I pray for you all. Do you see that? I pray for you all. In other words, he was, he was not selective in who he was praying for. Paul did not have his favorites that he would always be praying for. Paul prayed for every Christian. He prayed for those who were new believers, for those who were growing in their faith. He prayed for those who were falling in sin. He prayed for those who were, who were straying from the truth. He prayed for everyone. His prayer was an indiscriminate prayer. Thirdly, it is a joyful prayer. He, he makes his prayer with joy. He says, he says, making my prayer with joy. It was not burdensome or, or forced upon him. He, he did not feel like he, he, he had a burden to pray. He, he wanted to pray. And when he prayed, he prayed with joy. It should be the same with us, eh? It should be the same with us as Christians. Our remembrance of one another should not stop at warm feelings. Oh, Pastor Carabo. Oh, Kenzie. What a lovely woman she is. I know she is. It must not stop there. But our remembrance should be turned Godward in heartfelt prayer for one another, right? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says we should pray without ceasing. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, listen to this. He's saying praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Listen to the last line. Making supplication for all the saints making supplication for all the saints. When you see a need and, and you, you bring that need to God in prayer. Let me say this. When you're in conflict with someone, when you're fighting with someone, you won't be able to pray for them. When you're fighting with a, with a fellow Christian, you won't be able to pray for them. The reason Paul is saying, I pray with joy in my heart, is because he's at peace with these people. Right? You know you cannot sit down and, and pray that God would, would bless this person that you are angry at. We need to deal with such things. We need to deal with those things. The Bible says the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We have a tendency of saying to people, I'll pray for you, right? I will pray for you. Or, I am praying for you. And my question is, do you mean that? Do you really mean that? Are you actually praying? When you say, I will pray for you, do you, do you, do you go home and, and, and sit down and, and, and pray for that person? Do you mean that you will pray for them? Or is it just one of those things, you know, one of those cliches? Those Christian cliches. Now when someone tells you that they are in difficulty and you say to them, praying for peace, brother, praying for peace, sister, and you're not even praying at all. 
praying that everything will be okay. You're not praying at all. You're just saying it. Paul prays for these Christians. He truly and really prays. James Boyce says this. He says, I think that 90% of all the divisions between true believers in this world would disappear entirely if Christians would learn to pray specifically and constantly for one another. If we just learned to pray specifically, constantly for one another. The divisions that are there between true believers would disappear. So Christ-centered fellowship is seen in praying for one another. And the second element of a Christ-centered fellowship is serving one another. We see that in verse um, 5 and, and verse uh, verse 7, the last part of verse 7. Look at verse 5. This is what he says. He says, I'm praying for you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And here we see the reason of his thanksgiving. They, they partnered together with him in the gospel from first day until last. Paul is saying from the moment they got saved, they started to be active in the course of the gospel. Think about this. Think about Lydia for a moment. Lydia in Acts chapter 16, when she heard the gospel and was converted to faith in Christ. What was the first thing that she did? Well, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us in verse 15, it says, after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us. She begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She, she wanted to be hospitable to this man who was traveling to preach the gospel. When she had received Christ, she wanted to be involved in the progress of the gospel. And not only that, but verse 40 tells us that her, her house became a place where the brethren met. It became the first church in Philippi. She, she, she opened her resources for the progress of the gospel. And Paul is saying to these people that I'm praying for you because I know when I rejoice, I, I, I'm thinking about your partnership. Your partnership uh, in the gospel from the first day. The day you got saved, you, you wanted to be involved until last. They, they, they had a desire to see the progress of the gospel and they availed themselves towards that goal. They, they were active in, in serving the Lord. You see, the concept of being a member who, who just attends a church service once a week would have been completely foreign to them. It was completely foreign to these Christians. And rightly so. And it should be foreign to us as well. Christ never saves anyone. Listen to this. Christ never saves anyone so that they can add church attendance to their list of things to do. Are we clear? Nor does he save anyone so that they can live happier lives that are just as self-centered as they were before they were saved. 
Every believer, write this down, every believer is saved to serve. Every believer is saved to serve. What he meant by partnership here was sharing in the service which the gospel deserves as a, as a result of the blessing received through it. When we receive the blessing of the gospel, we see that we, we, we cannot keep it to ourselves, right? We, we cannot keep this blessing to ourselves. It, it, it must progress. It must go out there. It must go to other people. Like a beggar who has found a storeroom for bread and goes to other beggars and tells them, Hey, I found abundance. This must be our attitude. The church at Philippi was energetic in the course of the gospel. And, and what is more, it had been so from the beginning of its history. From the beginning. They did not wait. You, you think about the Philippian jailer as well. The Philippian jailer, uh, uh, after uh, uh, Paul and Silas were released, he, he took them to his house and he washed their wounds and, and he fed them. They wanted to serve. They were saved to serve. Again, in particular, the church has stood with Paul for the gospel. Look at verse 7. Just a few phrases in verse, verse 7. He talks about having them in his heart in verse 7 because they are partakers with grace, uh, with him of grace. Then he says, listen to this last part, both in my imprisonment and in the defense, those two words, defense and confirmation of the gospel. Defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, defending and confirmation, confirming the gospel are legal terms. And, and they refer to a trial in which Paul had given testimony. The church had supported him in prayer and also, and also done its own work in, in clearing the gospel from false charges of the world. And they did so by demonstrating its truth by the power of uh, uh, is truth and power by the character of their living. Do you know that we can give a bad testimony to the gospel by the way we live? Outsiders, unbelievers, when they look at Christian, Christians and they see that you, you, you say you have your allegiances to Christ and you are living like you're not of Christ, what will they do? they will malign Christians because of you. But when Paul was arrested, what did they, they continued to live uh, according to the gospel. They, they continued in their character to demonstrate the truth and, and the power of the gospel. They were defending the gospel with their lips and they were confirming the gospel with their lives. You see that? Christ-centered fellowship is seen in praying for one another, one. Secondly, it's seen in serving God together. And thirdly, Christ-centered fellowship is seen in trusting in God's sovereign working in one another. Trusting in God's sovereign working in one another. Look at verse 6. Beautiful, beautiful passage. Beautiful verse. And he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat myself. Amen. This verse indicates clearly that salvation is the work of God from first to last. And in the context of fellowship, it means trusting God for the growth of fellow believers, right? That even though they might not have they, they, they might not have grown spiritually as you desire. You still see the hand of God upon their lives. You still discern the, the hand of God upon their lives. And this helps us to come alongside one another, especially when we see a fellow believer pursuing an ungodly life, that, that we not respond to them with a judgmental attitude but to prayerfully confront one another with the goal of encouraging one another to Christ-likeness, to, to godliness. And sometimes, even confronting others who are clearly not displaying the fruits of salvation, and honestly and lovingly saying to them, brother, sister, based on the way you conduct your life and, and the absence of growth, and, and lack of love for, for the Lord and, and the things of the Lord. I, I don't think you're saved. I don't think you're saved based on the way you live. The, on, on, because it's a consistent way that you live. And it, it seems like you don't see something wrong with this kind of life that you live. I, I don't think that you're in Christ. Can we consider the gospel once again? Can we consider what Christ has done for us on the cross once again? Can we consider the command of God that calls us to repent of sin and to confess our sin and to trust in Christ once again? It's loving. It's honest. And as much as we're talking about God's sovereign working in one another, I don't want us to miss the riches of this verse and what it teaches about salvation. So let us consider it briefly. Here's, here's what it teaches about salvation. First, it teaches that God is at work in salvation. Salvation is God's work. See, the Philippians did not begin the work of salvation in themselves only to have God come alongside them and, and to add a little to it. It was entirely the work of God. God provided the way of salvation through his son. And, and Jesus Christ, and, and, and he enabled them to receive that salvation. So God not, not only came alongside them, but he initiated salvation in them. It is his work. And he gave them a way to salvation. And he enabled them to receive that salvation. Secondly, what he teaches is that salvation is a good work. He says a good work. He calls it a good work that God has begun in us. Salvation lifts, lifts the sinner from eternal condemnation and ruin and makes, them, and makes that person part of God's family and a partaker of God's eternal glory. It removes you from from darkness into God's marvelous light. From, from spiritual death 
to, to life in abundance, life in Christ. And who would dare say that this is not a good work? Right? You cannot say this is not a good work. It's a good work that God has begun in each and every one of us. Thirdly, we learn that salvation is a sure work. Salvation is a sure work. In other words, God does not begin it and then abandon it somewhere along the way. He, he does not pull his people from the flames of destruction only to allow them to slip back and be consumed again. God completes the work of salvation. We know what it is to plan a work and, and undertake a work only to see it fail, right? To start something, you say, I want to do this. I want to, I want to work at this thing. And at the end of the day, to, only to see it fail. But that is not so with God. We, we must not picture him looking over the redeemed multitude in eternity in heaven and saying, well, we, we, we did fairly well here. 80% of the saved finally made it to heaven. We did a good job. God will not have such a saying. He will not say such a thing. Because every one of the elect will make it home. God will make sure that at the right time, in the right way, they will hear the gospel. They will be convicted of sin. There's not an elect who will plunge into the depths of hell. God will complete that work. It's a sure work of salvation. Not one will be missing when God makes a head count in heaven. Not one will be missing. The faithful God will faithfully complete his work in us. So as we see here, Paul says, Christ-centered fellowship is first praying for one another, then serving God together. And thirdly, it is, it is trusting in God's sovereign working in one another. Fourthly, Christ-centered fellowship is partaking together of God's grace. Look at verse 7. He says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul saw the Philippians as partakers of grace with him. He, he was a man who had experienced the saving grace of God himself. And he recognizes that God has done the same thing with these Christians in Philippi. It, it, and it is also true of us who have met Christ. We are partakers of the grace of God. You see, the more I grow in Christ, the, the more I realized how much grace I needed to be saved. And, and how much grace I still need to daily go on living for Christ. And the more I, 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 I should view, the more I think about this, is the more I should, I should view my fellow brothers and sisters as fellow sinners who, who need not only grace from God, but also from me as we labor together for Christ. You see, viewing ourselves and other Christians as fellow partakers of God's grace humbles us and it puts us all on the same level, right? 
It puts us all on the same level. Think about it. It's unfortunate that today, people who refer to themselves as men of God would want people to kneel before them. Would want people to be on their knees when they talk to them. Paul, an apostle of God, writing 13 letters in the New Testament, a man who preached the gospel more than any other apostle, a man who traveled from region to region, Asia, Europe, sees himself as a partaker of grace with these believers. He does not view himself as God's greatest apostle to the Gentiles and the Philippians as his converts. He's not saying to them, just think where you'd be today if I hadn't come to you and given you the gospel. And don't forget how much I suffered in the process of it. He's not saying that. He's not saying that to them. It is interesting, actually, when you trace chronologically how Paul referred to himself in three of his letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he said that he was the least of the apostles. He, he sees himself as the least of the apostles. And later in Ephesians chapter 3, verse, verse 8, he said that he was the least of all the saints. Finally, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he, he called himself the chief of sinners. The humility of Paul. He, he does not see himself as a greater person. He does not see himself as major one, right? Partakers of grace. And this is, of course, does not mean that we, we should tolerate sin or, or shrug off sloppy living. We, we sometimes need to confront and we need to help one another face and overcome faults. Uh, but if we, we remember that we are all partakers of God's undeserved favor, we'll give one another more room to grow. We won't be saying to people judgmentally, what's taking you so long to grow? We give each other room. We know that there's grace at the foot of the cross. We'll be more patient and, and forbearing with one another. You see, Christ-centered fellowship is a sharing together in God's abundant grace. So we see that it's, it's first it's sin in, in praying for one another in serving God together and in trusting in God's sovereign working in one another and partaking together of God's grace and, and, and lastly, uh, and, and, and faith, Christ-centered fellowship is heartfelt affection for one another. Now I want us to think deeply about this. For God is my witness in verse 8, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
how I yearn for you all, Paul says, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul calls God as his witness of his longing and affection for the, for the Philippian believers. Not because he would be prone to, they would be prone to doubt him, but because he felt it so deeply in his heart. Affection here is the word for, uh, in the Greek, is the word for, for bowels or, 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 or the inner vital organs. It, it emphasizes uh, emotional, the emotional aspects of Paul's love for these people who were so dear to him. There was a popular Bible teacher a few years ago who, who used to say that the agape love is a mental attitude and not an emotion. And sadly, he and his followers often reflected his teaching. Being some of the, the coldest people that you'd ever want to meet. But the Apostle Paul was unashamedly emotional in his love for God's people. He, he told the Thessalonians that he cared for them as tenderly as a nursing mother. Then, in, in, then he said in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, listen to this. He says, having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves. Because you had become very dear to us. You were so dear to us that we did not only want to impart the gospel to you, but we wanted to give ourselves to you. A fond affection. You see, sin divides us from, from those who are different from us racially, culturally, and, and in other ways. But, but the love of Christ unites us. No, not just intellectually, it does not unite us intellectually, but with heartfelt love. When you think about a believer, you, 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 you rejoice to think about them. Such love is not manipulative love. It is not trying to, see, to, to use the other person for your own advantage. It, it truly seeks God's best for the other person. It, even at the personal inconvenience, it, at your personal inconvenience or sacrifice. You, you truly, truly love these people. Heartfelt affection for one another. That's what makes Christ-centered fellowship. Now here's a hard question. And I'm sure if you're honest, you, you also wrestle with it sometimes. Think about it. How can I develop a heartfelt love for a Christian whom I find it hard to be around? How can I develop a, a heartfelt love for a Christian whom I find it hard to be around? And let's be honest. It's not easy, right? It's, it's not easy. And, and all the elements of fellowship that I have mentioned go into that solution. You pray diligently for that person. You work with him in the gospel. You serve alongside them. You want to be in the same tea roster with them. You want to serve alongside them. 
You trust God to do his work of sanctification in that person. You ask him to share his testimony or, or, or background with you. It helps us when, when people share their testimony of how they came to Christ. That affirms how we are partakers of grace with them. And you recognize that you both are partakers of God's grace. But there's another factor that is mentioned in verse 8. You love him or her with the affection of Jesus Christ. J.B. Lightfoot paraphrases this by saying, Did I speak of having you in my own heart? I should rather have said that in the heart of Christ I long for you. Then he continues to comment on this verse. This is what he says. He says, A powerful metaphor describing perfect union. The believer has no yearnings apart from his Lord. His pulse beats with the pulse of Christ. His heart, his heart throbs with the heart of Christ. When you see another believer, your pulse beats with the pulse of Christ. Your heart throbs for them with the heart of Christ. Jesus loved that difficult brother that you find it hard to live with. He loved that difficult sister enough to go to the cross for him or her. And he can love them through me as well. He can love them through you as well. And as I obey, by judging my sinful thoughts toward the person and by acting in love, the feelings of love will almost invariably follow. Right? When I act in love and, and, and search myself, when, when I see feelings that are, are not of Christ and, and are not honoring to Christ and I'm judging them and I'm, I'm dealing with them and I'm acting in love, the feelings of love almost follow. They invariably follow. But even if they don't, I need to obey God. I, I need to obey God and serve in love. I read about a man named Muhammad who lives in North Africa. And that is a country that is, that is totally Muslim. He, he sent... For, for some literature he heard about on the radio broadcast and, and received in the mail a gospel of Matthew and a gospel of John. And he studied through them. As he studied through them daily, he came to faith in Christ. But unfortunately, there were no churches in his country. And, and Muhammad longed for a Christian brother to fellowship and pray with. He, he prayed diligently for four years, wondering if he will ever have joy of meeting another Christian, if he will ever experience that. Then one day he received a letter, a letter from a British Christian who had never met him, who was following up with those who, who had requested for, for gospel literature. The man told Muhammad that he would be in his area and, ask, and asked if they could meet. Muhammad was so excited that his prayer was finally going to be answers, answered and he, could, he couldn't sleep for three nights before the scheduled meeting. 
when they met, Muhammad's first experience of Christian fellowship was more wonderful than he could ever imagine. Some of us take Christian fellowship for granted, don't we? And what a privilege it is to be able to share together in the things of God. And if you just attend church, if you just attend church but unconcerned with other Christians during the week, you need to get plugged in with the fellowship. And all we need to see in ourselves we, we need to see ourselves as servants of Christ with, with a responsibility of reaching out in true fellowship, in Christ-centered fellowship to our brothers and sisters and especially to new people, right? Even those who may be different than we. Our fellowship does not have its basis on what we look like doesn't have its basis on our backgrounds, of our cultural and social dynamics. It has its basis in Christ. Amen. Indeed, Lord, you brought us to yourself when we were hostile against you. By the blood of Jesus Christ, you reconciled us to yourself and not only to yourself but also to one another I pray Father that this Christ centered fellowship will continue to grow from strength to strength in our midst that we will be connected we would be people who pray for one another who serve one another who celebrate what God is doing in our lives I pray Lord that you help us to have heartfelt affection for one another, to see each other as partakers of grace. We pray all this in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we come together today again to, to think about what Christ has done for us on the cross, what he accomplished for us by his death and his burial and resurrection, as we think about it with these physical elements, the wine representing his blood, the bread representing his body. I want to read again from this book by John Piper where he gives 50 reasons why Jesus came to die and, and I want us to think about it as we think about what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. I want to read reason number 20 that he gives. He says, Christ came to die to deliver us 
from the present evil age. He came to die to deliver us from the present evil age. And he quotes Galatians chapter 1 where he says he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Until we die or until Christ returns to establish his kingdom, we live in the present evil age. Therefore, when the Bible says that Christ gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age, it does not mean that he will take us out of the world, but that he will deliver us from the power of the evil in it. Jesus prayed for us like this. In John chapter 17 verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The reason Jesus prays for deliverance from the evil one is that this present evil age is the age when, when Satan is given freedom to deceive and destroy. The Bible says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one is called the God of this world with a small letter G. And his main aim is to blind people to truth. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Until we awaken to our darkened spiritual condition, we live in sync with the present evil age and the ruler of it. He says, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not at work in the sons of disobedience, which is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Without knowing it, we were like lekkies of the devil. What felt like freedom was bondage. The Bible speaks straight to 21st century feds, fun and addiction when it says they promised them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. The, the resounding cry of freedom in the Bible is, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Romans chapter 12 verse 2. <clears throat> in other words, it means be free. Don't be duped by the gurus of this age. They are here today and gone tomorrow. One enslaving fed follows another. 30 years from now, uh, today's tattoos will not, be marked of free, will not be marks of freedom, but indelible reminders of conformity. The, the wisdom of this age is folly in view of eternity. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly to God. The word of God, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. What then is the wisdom of God in this age? It is the great liberating death of Jesus Christ. The early followers of Jesus said, we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When Christ went to the cross, he set millions of captives free. He unmasked the devil's fraud and broke his power. That's what he meant on the eve of his crucifixion when he said, now will the ruler of this world be cast out in John 12, verse 31. Don't follow a defeated foe. Don't follow a defeated enemy. Follow Christ. It is costly. You will be an exile in this age, but you will be free. So Christ came 
to deliver us from the present evil age. And as we think about this, as we participate in, 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 in the Lord's Supper together, let me say this, that we, as a church, we practice an open table. What that means is that you might not be a member of uh, CBC, but if you're truly saved, if you are in Christ, if you've committed your life to serving and to living for Christ, then we welcome you to share in the communion with us. Let me open from 1 Corinthians and call the stewards to come to the front and to be ready to serve the communion to the congregation. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting from verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the Lord, the body of the, and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 